Well, good morning, Grace. Happy Mother's Day to you mothers, and for those of you who do the hard work of spiritual mothering, happy Mother's Day to you as well. My favorite day of science class was always microscope day, okay? Pull out those microscope and just light up. There was something especially wonderful about those days because we got to see things that our normal human eyes couldn't perceive. There was always something, it was a window kind of into something deep, something mysterious, something unknown. But I was also enamored uh, by some of the, the big pictures I was starting to see. As a kid, I remember seeing pictures from the space shuttle or the International Space Station or uh, later on the, the Hubble telescope and just being amazed at the, 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 just the bigness of it. We even play this game sometimes. I don't know if you've ever played this zoom in, zoom out game where we zoom in on a picture and we have to try and guess what it is. Let's play, there's one round here, okay? We can zoom in on a picture. Wow, that's beautiful. What is that? I wonder what it is. Okay, when you zoom out, it's just a field full of weeds. I mean, beautiful weeds, but still a bunch of weeds. This micro and macro view helps us. There's a, there's a great example of this tension and how it played out in my life recently. We were planning a trip for my family. And so we were looking at all the Airbnbs and VRBOs trying to find a place to stay. And we were looking at the pictures of these various places. And my wife, she tended to kind of zoom in really deep on the pictures, trying to find those special features that aren't even listed there, how, how the rooms fit together, whether it was going to be enough space for us. I tended to want to look at more of the, the macro view. I would get out on a Google Maps satellite view and kind of zoom out and see what, what's around us? How far is this really walk to the beach? Because I'm going to be carrying this stuff. And how, you know, what's around us, right? You only have to make the mistake once to realize that they don't put everything you need to see in the pictures, okay? Right? Man, this is really close to a construction site. I bet there's going to be noise at 730. Or this, this thing looks really close and downwind from the trash processing facility. We might want to avoid this one. Here's the point. Things look different based on your perspective. If it's just a micro view all the time, you're zoomed in really, really tight, you miss sometimes the big picture. But if all you're ever doing is looking at the big picture as well, you miss in on some of the up close and some of the personal. And that's the kind of feel and tension we have today in the story of Joseph. This tension between the macro and micro view. Because we're going to see today, we're going to have an opportunity to see some things on a very macro level in Joseph's story. But we dare not miss the close-up picture either. We don't want to miss that. And last week, we started on this kind of three-week journey with Joseph with this big idea that in the midst of all this human activity, 14 chapters in the book of Genesis, this long narrative, in the midst of all this human activity, there's really one main character who's at the center of it all, and it's not Joseph. It's actually God. God is this, this one working kind of behind the scenes. It's really God's story through Joseph. And last week I shared with you that there are three different times in three specific chapters where God shows up. He makes an appearance in the midst of all this human activity of secrecy and lies and betrayal and kingdoms and manipulation and all of these things. And when we does, we don't want to miss the point. And the big question I'm wrestling with, and maybe you're wrestling with too, with the story of Joseph is this, how might the full implications of what God's activity in this man's life and what we learn about God through this, what does that mean for my own life? Because not every truth is easy to handle, easy to uh, put into my heart, but the story is real. It's full of real people, really flawed and broken people, but we get a picture of a God revealed to us through this story. 
And last week we started on this journey with Joseph and I asked you to do your best not to rush to the end. I, I know some of you read ahead this week. I know it's okay, okay. But take the journey with us because our lives, they unfold as we go. And I wanted us to experience it like Joseph experienced it. It would be better and wiser for us. And so we left Joseph last week. He was, in, uh, he was sold into slavery by his brothers. He's faithful. He works his way up. He only to get promoted. And then eventually he's lied about and thrown in prison. But the big overarching message of chapter 39 last week was that Yahweh God was with Joseph. Yahweh God was with him. Both in the rise and in the fall, God never left him. And we asked ourselves this question, what would I be able to live through? What would I be able to to handle if only I knew I had the guarantee of God's promise with me, that I'm not alone, that I'm not left to fend for myself. And the good news is that we have promises all over the scripture that that's exactly the case, that we have a God who is with us. And so let's dig in today. Each week, I, I promise I'll try and do my best to quickly kind of catch you up in the narrative part of the story. And then once we get to these kind of behind the scenes moments, we're gonna stop and slow down and make sure we don't miss the point. Now, when we left Joseph last week, he's in jail. And I'm sure there had to be moments where he cried out to God, how long? How long am I gonna do this? How much more of this? Is this really my lot in life because I'm having a hard time trusting you? I'm having a hard time sensing maybe your presence with me. I'm having a hard time knowing how this is all serving your purposes. It's baffling to me, God, right? The dreams you gave me and my reality, they are not lining up. And disillusionment must have sunk in. And it's while in prison in chapter 40 that he meets two men, two royal officials from Pharaoh's uh, palace. And while these men are temporarily, they're temporarily in prison because Pharaoh's trying to figure out who's behind a plot to kill him. And lo and behold, these men, while they're in prison, have these vivid dreams. And Joseph, he, he knows a few things about dreams, doesn't he? And through the Lord's blessing, he's able to interpret these dreams and tell these men what these dreams mean. And the cupbearer and the baker, one of them's going to, it's going to go well for them. And the other one, he is not going to make it. But the point is that Joseph is exactly correct. It's exactly what he said would happen. And all he asked these men on the way out when they're heading back to the palace is to be remembered when they get out of there. I mean, you can imagine this, right? Like, please, could you, could you put a good word in for me? I'm falsely imprisoned. I'm not supposed to be here. Can you just remember me? Maybe I can get out of here. And rather ominously, at the very end of chapter 40, the last verse of chapter 40, it says this, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And the clock starts on two more years of prison. Two more years wasted that the cupbearer forgets him. Until one day, at the very beginning of chapter 41, it says this, after two whole years, just like, just out of the blue, just like every other terrible day in jail, with no advance warning, Pharaoh has a dream. One of the most powerful men in the entire world has dreams on one particular night about cows of all things and ears and heads of grain. And no one can give Pharaoh the wisdom or the meaning that he needs to understand what these dreams mean and what he should do about them. He can't find any relief, it's, it's haunting him, it's, it's causing him some distress, he needs answers and wisdom. And it's at this moment that Joseph is remembered, remembered. Never forgotten by God, but all of a sudden now remembered by the cupbearer who says, oh yeah, there's this guy in jail I met. And he's remembered. Now let's pause here. I want us to get a, a feel for the full moment here. 
Joseph is about to stand before Pharaoh. And I'm not sure how he's walking into this meeting. Like if I put myself in Joseph's shoes, I'm not sure what he's thinking. It could go one of two ways, right? This is finally my moment. I'm gonna do it. It's gonna be great. Or I I tend to think he might've walked in going, I'm a little nervous. What's gonna happen now? I don't have a lot of positive experiences so far. Who else has lied about me, betrayed me, not remembered me? And so Joseph is called from jail. He's prepped for the biggest meeting of his entire life. This once in a lifetime opportunity to stand in the presence of the most powerful man on earth and to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. And it's this, it's this turning point in Joseph's life where he's about to go from prison to the throne room and guess who's there? Yeah, the one behind the scenes. We get another peek, another peel behind the curtain to see what's God up to in all of this. Now, as we enter this moment, we're gonna be in chapter 41 most of the morning. If you wanna follow along in your copies of the scriptures, that's where we're gonna be this morning. But all through chapter 41, here's, here's the big idea. God's intervening. God is intervening, both on the macro level, like in the entire world, but also on the micro level of Joseph's heart and life. He's intervening. He's working in both of these areas to bring about the result that he wants to bring about. Let's take a look at the macro level first. The first thing we come across in verse 16 of chapter 41 is this. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it's not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Just an interesting quick aside. This is a moment where right before he interprets these dreams, Joseph wants to give credit where credit is due. This is a moment where Joseph could have said, oh, I'm about to get mine. I'm about to get mine. I'm about to use what my God-given gifts and abilities to get what's coming to me. But he doesn't do it. Instead, he insists that this answer, this favorable answer is coming from God. That he, He's the one that's been giving him this uh, ability. And I think that's one of our temptations maybe as human beings is to take credit for what God has given us and claim it as our own. And Joseph doesn't do that. And so Joseph, as he's interpreting these dreams and letting Pharaoh know what all of this means, three times in eight verses, we get kind of the same idea or the same theme. It starts this way in verse verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years and the seven good ears are the seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after that there will arise seven years of famine and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the lamb and and the plenty will be forgotten. The the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow. Very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God and God will bring it short, shortly bring it about. Now don't miss the repetition three times, right? Verse 25, God has revealed what he is about to do. He's revealed it, he's gonna do it. Verse 28, God has shown you what he is about to do. And he, what he's about to do. He's shown it to you and he's gonna do it. Verse 32, it's fixed by God and he's bringing it about shortly. It's already determined, it's going to happen. Now these, these words, we don't wanna miss these words. These are action words attributed to God. This is not passivity on his part. 
Joseph tells the most powerful man in the world, God is doing something. And you have no control over it, Pharaoh. He's intervening here. You are along for the ride. And he's being kind to you and showing you this and revealing this to you. He's doing worldwide things here. Like, let's, re- let's just do a little recap of what's happening here so we get it. God is literally about to alter the weather patterns of the climate of the earth. And on top of that, he sent dreams, particular dreams, to a world leader at just the right time so a cupbearer can remember an experience he had two years ago so that a son of Jacob who grew up hundreds of miles away and now in slavery and prison, can, he can be brought to a moment where he can say to the most powerful man on the earth, God's doing something. He's going to make it happen. You better, you better listen. It's locked in. It's a sure thing. It's going to happen. Right? The big question of the book of Genesis is, how is God going to fulfill these covenant promises, these promises to Abraham's family? God's making moves. He's, he's doing things that he needs to do to secure the promises that he needs to secure in spite of some of these impossible situations from a human perspective. He's putting his man in just the right place at just the right time. And even before this moment, he's already used a whole set of brothers a well-timed caravan of Ishmaelites, Potiphar and his lying wife, a jailer, a cupbearer, and now Pharaoh. And he's intervening in all of these people's lives. He's determined the course of history. He's going to do it. Uh, Pastor Tony Evans, when he talked about this chapter, he said, God's invisible hand is all over this chapter. And then Joseph, he gets this opportunity to speak up. And he has the boldness to say, here's, here's what you should do, Pharaoh the confidence he must have had in that that moment to stand before the most powerful man in the world. You better put your eggs in this basket. You need to go all in on this plan if if you're gonna survive this coming famine. In some ways he was saying, Pharaoh, put all the chips on red. It's coming up red. And there's some irony here because it's going to appear in just a little while that Joseph is being uh, kind of a made man by Pharaoh. But that's not the picture we get from the book of Genesis. Instead, there's something very different going on. Joseph is being used as an instrument to do something to preserve the covenant family. And Pharaoh is simply unwittingly carrying out God's plan, even when he thinks it's his. And Pharaoh recognizes the hand of God on Joseph. And in verse 38, it says this, and Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this? In whom is the spirit of God? And what a, what, a, what a statement from a, a pagan king. And that word, that, those words, spirit of God there, it's actually two Hebrew words called ruelohim, and they haven't been used since Genesis 1-2 when it says the spirit of God hovered over the waters. I know. <laughs> God's here. He's giving supernatural wisdom. There's no other man like this in Egypt. And and in verse 39, Pharaoh claims, claims, none is discerning and as wise as you are. And so Joseph is being used as a tool and instrument in the hands of God. He's being put in charge. He's gonna be put in charge and made the second in command of the entire country. And as we'll soon find out, maybe the the second most powerful man in the entire world because Egypt has a plan for famine now. They know something that the rest of the world doesn't know. And in just a few years, they'll be sitting on all the food and all the grain. God is doing 
big things, macro things. He's intervening in the world. But I don't want you to miss the last part of this chapter either. God is certainly orchestrating something in the world, right? He's, he's world leaders, global weather patterns. He's putting position, people into positions of authority at just the right time. But at the very end of this chapter, we get a glimpse at what God is doing in Joseph's heart and life as well. Because we could make this teaching time today, and I could, about all this idea that God is all powerful control of the entire world. But he is not just the God of earthly powers and weather patterns and world orchestration. He certainly is that. But he's also a very personal and loving God who is still working and active in the lives of those who love and trust him. And in all these years, he's also been intervening in Joseph's life. This tension or idea reminded me of the board game Risk. I don't know if you guys have played this, maybe something like it. Risk is this strategy game where you're trying to take over the entire world. And you've got different uh, territories and different kinds of armies. And then all these soldiers have different things they can do, different abilities. And there's even this kind of roll of the dice. So there's an element of chance in the game. But do you know what's not in risk? There's not a card that says Bill or Jenny or Amanda or Frank. No, they're just nameless, faceless masses. And the author of Genesis does not want us to get the impression that this is the God we, we serve. He does not want that to be the impression we're left with. We can, we can make this, like, right, seeing God as this great force behind all of these things. But he isn't just the general moving pieces on the board. He's also the kind of general who knows that soldier's name. He knows the name, he knows the story of that soldier. He knows that soldier's kids' names. And as we get to this big transition in Joseph's life, He's working the plan God gave him. And at the end of chapter 41, we get this very quick fast forward. The seven years of plenty go by like this. And it says before the famine hit, Joseph had two sons. And we get one more peek, one more look behind the scenes at what God is up to. Because God's not just working in the big world out there. He's also working in Joseph's world. And we get a clue about where Joseph is spiritually right now. And the microscope is kind of zooming in on his heart. What's going on with Joseph? This moment where we learn the names of Joseph's two sons, I think is pivotal in Joseph's life because he gives his sons Hebrew names that praise God. This is, this is their father's heritage. The names of these boys are gonna be Joseph's testimony to what God is doing in his life. It's been a long journey. There's been a lot of hardship. It has not been easy. And the overarching theme of his life is one of uh, kind of pain in some ways. And yet verse 50 says this of chapter 41, before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. And Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second one he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The names of these sons are, are powerful indications of where Joseph's at. He names the first one Manasseh. The root word, Hebrew word there, is the word to forget. He has made me forget all of my hardship in my father's house. And this, this one, friends, is striking to me. Because I, I, have, I have some things in my past that I wish I could forget. I have some things in my childhood that I can't let go of. I want to forget sometimes. I'm not sure how Joseph did this. 
how he can claim to have forgotten all of the hardship of, of his life. But I think the key is, don't miss this, Joseph does not say, I forgot all the trouble of my hardship, or I went to extensive counseling to work on my problems so that I would be a better human being, although those are great things and we should totally do those. It says, God did this. God made me forget my trouble and my hardship. He's done a work in my life that I can't explain. And then he names his second son Ephraim, and that root Hebrew word is the word fruitful. God's made me fruitful even in the land of my affliction. There's an abundance to his life. There's so much good growing out of his life. And this word fruitful, it's a very powerful word in the book of Genesis because this is the same word that's used on the very first command given to any person on this earth. It says, be fruitful and multiply in Genesis 128. And it's the same word. And Joseph's saying, oh no, I'm fruitful. God, God's doing something out of, out of my life. Now I'll be honest, okay? If I was naming my sons or in Joseph's shoes, I probably would have picked different names. I probably would have gone with something like, look at what my brothers did. Or she lied about me. Or forgotten for years. Had to wait too long. Duped by God with some dreams. Now Joseph. No word of all this heartache in his circumstances, his testimony, his, his different kind of story is, look at what God has done in my life. He's made me forget and he's made me fruitful. He's done something only he can do in a heart and a life. Now, there's so much beauty, I think, and so much just poetry in the fact that Joseph gives his son these Hebrew names. In spite of all the hardship of his life, in spite of all the times I'm sure he wanted to blame God, resent God, be done with God. He still says, I still love God. He's been with me. He's been intervening in my life and he wants to honor him accordingly because he maybe can see some things now that he couldn't see before. Now there's a, there's a big tension here for us to take note of, friends, this, idea, this macro and micro thing. Because chapter 41 kind of gives us this behind the scenes peek look at what God is doing. He shows up and he's intervening all over the place. He's doing some big things. There's some big things in the work in world, world leaders, weather patterns, famine plans, supernatural gifting of dream interpretation, the orchestration of at least 20 something people's lives. But he's also doing something very personal in Joseph's heart. And the testimony of his, of his heart at this point in his life is, God has made me forget all of my troubles and God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And he wants everyone to know it so that every time he calls one of these sons' names, he remembers that God doesn't just intervene in big pictures, in the macro stuff. He's also working in the micro pictures of our, of our lives. You should see what God can do in me. And so that's the message of chapter 41. And it begs the question, what do, we, what do we need to take from this? What difference might it make in my life? What do I need to learn from chapter 41 and hold on to? And as I thought and prayed and studied about this passage and our time together this morning, together, two big truths kind of struck me for today. Two big truths as I, as I read chapter 41 that I would want you to hold on tight to. And I think the corresponding applications that make sense in light of that. 
The first one, first thing I would, I would want you to know, big truth is this, that God is still intervening. God is still intervening in the macro and the micro of this world. He is, he is the same God. Joseph's God is Yahweh God. He's still the one in charge. He still works in this way. And this is his story, friends, all over the scriptures. Here's just a quick, a quick sampling of what it says about God and his, his ability to do these things. Jeremiah 32, 17. Off sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Job 42, 2. He says, Job says about God, I know you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Proverbs 19, 21, many are the plans in a person's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. And one of my favorites, Isaiah chapter 46, remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. I have made known the end from the beginning, from ancient times and what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. And that's just a quick sample, friends. Now, he is not intervening on the timetable that we would prefer most of the time. But he's still intervening. He's still sending dreams to world powers. He's still working men and women he can trust into positions of influence and authority and prominence. And he is certainly still changing hearts and doing what seems like impossible in our individual lives. Sure, God is kind of bringing a famine that is gonna look like it's threatening the chosen family. But at the same time, he's been working a 22-year rescue plan to save that chosen family. And the hard truth about all this is that I think this moment, maybe 20-something years in, in Joseph's whole saga, this might be the first time he just has a little taste of what God might be up to. He doesn't even know the whole story yet. He doesn't even know the whole picture, but he maybe, maybe for the first time, he's, after 20-something years, he's starting to see a little bit of what God might have had in mind with those dreams. He's intervening, friends. And so I think the application for us in, in our lives, if, if this is true of God, if he's active, he's working, he's doing things, he's intervening, he's working his plan and on his timetable, he's not this aloof clockmaker that just winds it up and lets it go, then we ought to maybe follow Joseph's model. And we can look at his life and see and behave in some of the ways he did, this, this trust, serving well wherever you're at, being faithful in the little things, taking the right next step in front of you, Maybe doing your best to see your current circumstances as, as part of a, a process that may be preparing you for what God has for you next. You could testify to, to what God has already done in your life and heart. And, and I, I don't say this lightly, friends, that, that God is in control, he's got a plan. I hope that never comes across uh, flippantly telling you that God has a plan because I know there's a lot of us who struggle with the whys of this life but I also cannot get away from the truth of this story, as hard as it is for my, my heart to handle sometimes. Because I know there's pain all over this room, circumstances that I will never understand or be able to grasp. But the picture of God we, we get here is that he's in control, he's intervening, he's doing things, he's active. And part of, I think, living this life of faith is, is trying our best to believe that God knows what he's doing and that he's intervening.
And so I think one, another great application for us might be just pray. Pray for God's intervention. Pray for God's intervention in the big macro world, but also the micro world of your own heart. Pray in both of those areas. God is still intervening in the big and the small of this world. And the second truth for us is this. God can make hearts grateful and fruitful. God can make hearts grateful and fruitful. And I might say it even stronger than that. Only God can make hearts grateful and fruitful. Only God can do this kind of heart change in our lives. Joseph's testimony, it can be our testimony too, that he's able to make me forget the trouble of my past and he's gonna have to do it because I know how prevalent it is for me to live out of my past and out of my past hurts. He's going to have to do it. He does this sort of thing, friends, slowly and surely, year after year, he's working on us. He's making something beautiful out of us and doing something miraculous in our own hearts that we cannot do ourselves. And so I think the application for us in, in the light of this truth is this. If you want a grateful and fruitful heart, ask him for it. Ask him for it. In a quiet moment this week, find a, find a time and just ask him to do a work in your heart that you can't manufacture. And when I said that, there was probably an area that came to your mind even right now. God, I need your help here. This is impossible. I can't change me. I've tried. I'm giving up. I'm gonna trust that you can do it because I've tried 14 different ways to get this done and it's not happening. And friends, that, that is the story of the gospel is that once we realize we can't do it, God steps in and says, I'll do it on your behalf. Grace can transform that area of your life. I know you can't do it, but I can do it. And so men and women of grace, the clear message of chapter 41, I think, is this. Let's not for a second believe that God is passively sitting around this world. And it looks that way sometimes. A lot of times I find myself, much like Joseph, probably in a jail cell, wondering how, how long, God? How, how long is it gonna be like this? No, he's, he's active. He's doing things. He's intervening, both in the macro if we're paying attention, and the micro of our own hearts as well. He's still intervening in this world and in you and I. And so Joseph, after 12 years of what seems like a waste, right? At least that's what it looks like on the stage in front of us. He gets his moment. At just the right time, the sleep of a world leader is disturbed. And he's remembered. God's been with him this whole time, granting him favor, and Joseph's put in power. I mean, big time power, big time authority. As he reflects on his life in these years of plenty, he says, he sees the hand of God, not just in the macro picture, the big world, the famine type of stuff, but also in his own heart, making him forget and making him fruitful. God's intervening, he's orchestrating, he's moving the pieces around the board but he's also doing a work in one piece of the board's heart. He's doing an impossible work in his heart. And it's not the only impossible work God's gonna do in Joseph's heart. There's still more to come. And so we get to the end of chapter 41 and it says this, the whole earth came to Egypt to buy food because the famine was severe. 
God did what he said he would do. Only this time, Joseph is in charge. He has the upper hand. It's been 20 or so years since we met him in chapter 37. 20 or so years from those dreams that God gave him. And what do we have here? Look who's coming to town. The setup is perfect. The only question is, what's Joseph going to do? But we'll have to leave that for next week. Let me pray for us. God, we come before you this morning humbled and grateful, God. Grateful that you're with us. Grateful, God, that you are still intervening in this world and in our lives. We know you are the God of the universe who is working and active, and you've intervened in this world by sending your son, and he's promised one day, God, that he will come and intervene again and restore and redeem all that is bent and broken in this world and in us too. And we long for that day, God. We wait with eager expectation. And while we wait for that day, God, make our hearts grateful, make them fruitful, do a work in us that only you can do, and we'll give you the glory for that, God. And we ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.